0: I take from my text this morning the 30th verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Please pray with me. Lord, may your Spirit be with us now, that we can discern a lesson for our lives, and hear your good news. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to this third Sunday of Advent. As I said, this is the Sunday of joy, the pink candle, Gaudete Sunday. And, even, and we even have our text this morning that includes in certain translations the word rejoice. How appropriate. But I don't want to get ahead of myself because we've work to do this morning. We have a text to dive into. This Advent, I've decided to take a closer look at the accounts of the, births, of the birth narratives in both Matthew and Luke. I want to see what the Bible actually has to say about Christmas. Our popular culture has its own views on Christmas. It's about Christmas lights and greens and reds and Santa and debates over Starbucks coffee cups and Facebook arguments about how bad or how not so bad is the song, Baby It's Cold Outside. <laughs> Here in church, it's up to us to refocus on Christmas and the Bible. Yet all too often, we, see, we hear the same melded story told again and again, where Matthew and Luke are, unart, are unartfully pasted together. The endless crash scenes, which combine Matthew and Luke, only reinforce our tendency to mix these biblical accounts. In doing so, we obscure the distinct features of each gospel and miss the opportunity to learn something new about these texts and how they might be speaking to us today. We miss the point of Christmas that our evangelists are trying to tell us. And so to combat this, we are unwrapping the Christmas stories this Advent. So on the first Sunday in Advent, I looked at the opening of the Gospel of Matthew, the oft-ignored genealogy of Jesus. While reading the names out loud might be the surest way to defeat insomnia, I tried to show how the genealogy would have meant a lot to Matthew's original listeners, the genealogy solidified Jesus as a new King David. It reminded those who knew their Hebrew Bible that God's promises were for all people through Abraham. And the genealogy intentionally included women who might, be judged, who might have been judged negatively by society to show that God's dra- grace extends to truly all people. It is a big tent genealogy and a big tent gospel. And last week we looked at the birth of Jesus itself, according to Matthew. The primary theme we see running through Matthew's account is the explicit use of Hebrew Bible references. We have Joseph receiving the word of God through dreams, just like the patriarch, Joseph. We have a miraculous birth story that mirrored stories which circulated at the time of Old Testament figures. Later in chapter 2, we have a tyrant king in the mold of Pharaoh. Jesus flees with his family and then comes out of Egypt, as Moses and the Israelites had done. Finally, Matthew focuses on the character of Joseph. Joseph is law-abiding, the good son, the one who always does right, but who also willingly breaks the law for the sake of Mary and opens opens himself up to criticism by marrying a woman who is already pregnant. In Matthew's short introduction, we see the same themes that appear throughout the remainder of his gospel, the links with the Old Testament and particularly with Moses, and the fact that, that in Jesus the law is fulfilled, a law which focuses on people over legalism. Well, this morning, we now get to turn our attention to the Gospel of Luke. I know that you're on the edge of your seat right now. What does Luke do differently, you're asking yourself? How does he frame his story? In our text for today, we get the classic story of the Annunciation, something that has been popular with artists for a thousand years. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary to share the good news that she will become pregnant with Jesus. Jesus. This text also forms the basis for the Hail Mary prayer that has been wildly popular in Roman Catholic devotions for a thousand years. Those of you who are raised Catholic, I'm sure, can't help but start muttering the prayer when you hear Gabriel say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. In fact, I was surprised Michael didn't use that translation when he was reading through those lines this morning. (laughs) But when we step back from the famous frescoes in our heads, or from imagining that we have a rosary in our hands, we see the remarkable similarities between Matthew and Luke. Most obviously, both accounts feature angelic appearances. Not all that common in our literature, but quite common in biblical times. Both Matthew and Luke follow a common Old Testament pattern for birth announcements. Compare these birth announcements with those of Isaac or Ishmael or Samson, and you'll find the same basic structure. Matthew and Luke both include the angelic words, Do not be afraid. We see the pronouncement in both about the name of Jesus and that he will save people from their sins. The the lineage of David features prominently in both. Most controversially for modern readers, both Matthew and Luke tell the story of a virgin birth. Now, it's true that some people claim that the Luke version that we have today does not require a virginal conception. In Matthew, it is clear that that Joseph and Mary did not have sex until after Jesus was born. The evangelist says that plainly in black and white. In Luke, however... The text says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary and that she will bear a son. That does not rule out the possibility that Mary and Joseph had intercourse with the Holy Spirit playing a supporting role. (laughs) Nevertheless, most scholars admit that Luke was likely working with stories that he'd heard of that included a virgin birth. After all, Joseph and Mary were not living together at the time of the Annunciation, and the evangelist specifically refers to her as a virgin. The similarities in these two accounts are so striking that many scholars assume that Matthew and Luke were aware of stories of Jesus' birth and incorporated them into their own narratives. As a side note, the opening of Matthew and Luke have another key thing in common. In both Gospels, there are no references to the birth in the rest of the Gospels, something that is unusual and that has led scholars to posit that the birth narratives were separate compositions that were later included or added onto the the Gospels. Now, with that, I'll just lay that out there. You can mull it over when you get bored with the rest of the sermon. But with all the similarities between these these two accounts, there are also significant differences. We already saw that Matthew composed his gospel with a particular emphasis on Judaism and the fulfillment of the law in Jesus. That was what mattered to him and his first audience. What about Luke? How is his account unique? How can we learn about Luke from his story, What might his account be telling us? Now, if there's one thing in our society that we worship, it is power. Power, and by extension, money and fame, which are so often expressions of power. The naked adoration of power is more evident today than at any other time in my lifetime. I know many of you probably see the same thing. People across the political spectrum are disgusted with Washington because it seems, again and again, that the rich and powerful are rewarded at the expense of those without power. Companies that pollute are given free reign to pollute so they can pad their bottom line, even if it has consequences for average Americans. Our national parks are being divvied up and auctioned off to be exploited for the private gain of, of, of the few. Our national treasury is being bankrupted so that companies with piles, on ca- piles of cash on hand can have tax breaks that give them yet more money. Young kids admire those with hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers rather than those who help others or society at large. The yawning gap between rich and poor gets wider and wider. Pharmaceutical companies buy up the rights to certain drugs with expired patents in limited markets and then jack up the prices. Predatory lenders charge usurious rates for poor people for payday loans and bail bonds for loved ones. I could go on and on. We see these abuses, and yet little, little is done about it, because the people with power hold all the strings. Last week, incoming first-year people in Congress, freshmen in Congress, were all encouraged to attend a conference at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, which was designed to teach incoming congressmen about how Washington actually functioned. Once they were there, they discovered that all the instructors were either lobbyists or former high-ranking government officials. Certain incoming congressmen, led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, asked where the labor leaders were, or the community activists. They were nowhere to be found. Those in power had set up the conference to teach the newbies about how power in Washington actually worked. I guess that shouldn't surprise us. Probably the most intractable aspect of power in our society is is, is that those who seek to change the system, who have the ideals and the talent to make things fairer, get co-opted by the system, and then become a part of it. Just last weekend, I was in Boston for the baptism of a good friend's newborn daughter. While I was there, I ran into an old friend from college. This friend had been one of the idealistic types in college. He was one of the few people in my fraternity who was an activist. His father was a police officer, and when he got to Harvard, he saw firsthand income inequalities and power differentials in society, and he rebelled against that. His first job out of college was teaching high school at a Native American reservation. But over time, his friend saw how things worked. He saw the reality of power in society. Now he runs his own company that contracts writers for financial firms and other big corporations. His biggest client is Bridgewater, the largest hedge fund in the world. He still sees the way power works in society. He's not happy about it. But he just wants a piece of it for himself. Can you blame him? But the aspect of power society that disturbs me most is how people in power use fear and misinformation in order to maintain their power. Look at the hysteria over immigration, both legal and illegal. Most people who are disturbed by immigration know few, if any, immigrants. Meanwhile you have this false narrative about, say, a, ma- a migrant caravan invading the U.S. The migrant caravan was- wasn't trying to invade the U.S. Here were people attempting to legally seek asylum in our country. You might argue that our asylum process needs to be fixed, and that would be a good conversation to have. But no. The coverage on television was so often about fear and misinformation. When I'm at the gym, I get to watch, watch Tucker Carlson on TV. I don't actually get to choose what's on TV. But, uh... And it regularly amazes me. This is something worth doing if you haven't done this before. It regularly amazes me that every one of Carlson's stories are about inflaming the culture war. He picks one anecdotal example of an overly political correct culture on the left and then magnifies it into an epidemic problem. Whatever happened to real news, to educating people about real solutions? No, nope, it's about ratings. Fear and anger, regardless of their merit, give you ratings. And when you look underneath it, it's fundamentally about power. And there's misinformation on the left as well. As I talked about before, the whole controversy over the Keystone pipeline was rife with misinformation on the left about pipelines and the realities of energy in the US. It became an us versus them politicized issue. True education and engagement are lacking. No matter where we look, we see power striving to get more power at the expense of the powerless. It's getting worse and worse. And I do legitimately fear for the future of our nation. I'm sure many of you do as well. But what are we gonna do? We can see what's going on, it might grind us down but too often we're left feeling powerless. We cry out on social media. We lament the state of things with our friends. You might have worked hard during the most recent election for whatever candidate or whichever party you support, but now that's over. Now as a citizen, you just have to wait. The circumstances today are actually not all that different than they were in the time of Luke. Power was even more worshipped in ancient Rome than it is today. Rome was not a democracy. Power was 100% in the hands of the few, and the few did use it for their own gain. In addition to the network of the Roman Empire and the and the Pax, in addition, the network of the Roman Roman Empire and the Pax Romana, the world peace that Roman domination domination ushered in, led to huge economic increases. But those economic gains were not equally distributed in, in society in Luke's day. Across the Roman Empire, there had been consolidation of farms, so that more and more people lived as tenants on large estates rather than property owners themselves. The urban population in Luke's day had grown, and with it grew urban poverty. The old pagan gods of Greece and Rome had lost their force, and people turned increasingly to mystery religions. Even in Rome itself, things had been different in the past. The great Roman historian Livy had written all about the time when morality and values actually mattered, and Livy lamented on how much that had changed. Those in Palestine not far from where Luke likely wrote, were particularly struck by the decline in collective values and the grabbing after power. Herod the Great, who was king during the birth of Jesus, was a famous collaborator with the Romans. Those who wanted to get ahead became collaborators as well. Luke, would also, have, Luke also would have witnessed the great four-year rebellion against the Romans that ended in disaster and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. After that, there seemed no other option than to go along to get along. People felt powerless. They saw the injustices, they saw the problems, and there was nothing they could do about it. One key difference between Luke's birth narrative and Matthew's is that Luke begins his account in Nazareth, in Galilee. Matthew has set his opening in Bethlehem, the city of David, and not far from the great power center in Jerusalem. In Matthew's account, David and, uh, Joseph and Mary are actually living in Bethlehem at the time. But not so in Luke's. Nazareth was a little-known town, out of the way. Think of Tomball, Texas, 20 years ago. That was Nazareth. That's where the Annunciation takes place. That's where the world is about to be changed forever. It's not set in New York City or D.C. or even in interloop Houston. It's a place that few people ever visited or even knew about. And Luke emphasizes that. He lifts it up. God appears in Nazareth. Another key difference between Matthew and Luke's account is that Matthew focuses more on the power structures of his day. Matthew's genealogy opens his gospel, and that genealogy makes clear that Jesus is a descendant of kings. He's a part of the power structure. In chapter 2, Matthew has wise men who are important people come to pay homage to Jesus. That's what disturbed King Herod so much. He sees the baby Jesus as a political threat, a real power from the very start. In Matthew's account, the central Old Testament parallel is between Moses Remember who was the political leader of the Israelites and Jesus. Luke's account has a starkly different emphasis. The focus is on Mary. Mary was a teenage girl in an extremely patriarchal society. In Mary's time, men had all the power, men determined who would marry whom. Mary had no financial resources of her own, she was the embodiment of the powerless in society. So when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, you can imagine her reaction. She saw the angel and was deeply disturbed at what it could mean. Why would an angel of the Lord be coming to her, her of all people? When the angel announced the impossibly good news, Mary was in disbelief. How could it be? How could this happen to her? But the message was repeated. No, you, you are the favored one of God. You are special. You are the chosen vessel of the Lord. God did not choose the powerful to bring Jesus into the world. God chose the lowly, the powerless, and God promised to be with her. God was on her side. When she objected, Gabriel told her that nothing, nothing was impossible with God. She had to believe in that truth, that reality. The world would change, not through the powerful, but through a virgin girl in a random corner of the Roman Empire. And then shortly after our text for today, Mary sings her song, the Magnificat, It's a song about God favoring the powerless and promising that the powerful and arrogant will be brought low by God. That is what Luke is saying. That is what Luke wants you to know about Mary. This season, that is a message that God wants us all to hear. We hear that God chose people without power to bring the message of joy and good tidings to the world. There was the power of the earth, the power we see all around us, and there was the power of God the power of God works through the Holy Spirit it works through ordinary people the Spirit stirs within all of you the Spirit inspires you to see that somehow a new way might be possible you have to accept that it can, be, that it can happen and be moved to choose the way of God Gabriel does not offer a blueprint for change instead Gabriel promises that Jesus will show the way But if you miss the central point that Luke is making in this passage, then you're liable to misinterpret Jesus. It's about bringing power to the powerless. It's about the promise to a scared teenage girl in the remote corner of the world. It's something that God is also also whispering to you. That's what the gospel is about. This is the good news. You are blessed. You in your normal jobs in a random corner of the world, you, in fact, do have the power to be a part of this change. Not through your own influence, but through the quiet workings of the Spirit, guided and strengthened by the example of Jesus. When you look to Jesus and speak to others about justice and love, it resonates with them. There's a deep power there. It's not about political parties or tribal loyalties. It's about the God who transcends those divides. You have the chance to learn more about the issues that matter, to speak the truth of of a situation. In spite of all that we hear, facts do actually matter but so do your perspective on those facts, the way you interpret them. You have to see the the world through the way God sees it, through the eyes of Mary, lowly Mary. God doesn't focus on lights and presents and popular Christmas tunes. God focuses on you, on the pains and hurts and the struggles that you and others feel. God helps us to see what is really going on around us and to view things from the bottom up, from the perspective of Mary. God's revolutionary change is not a sudden thing, When Mary heard that announcement 2,000 years ago, it was not an announcement that all would be well that day. It was a promise for the future. On this third Sunday in Advent, we are called to be like Mary and to ponder those things in our hearts. How can we look at the world differently? Take time to do that this week. When the power and ways of the world confront you on all sides, take a break. Take a breath and a time for yourself and picture Mary in your head. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Here I am, a servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. May those words and that young girl be with you. Because when you can see the world as Mary did, you can realize the deeper truth. That the Lord is with you. And against the Lord, even the power of the world must bow someday. Someday.